Welcome to Top of Mind with Concilio Wealth, a show about markets, investing, and financial planning. Join us as we cover current events that are in the news and answer top of mind questions from our listeners. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. This audio may contain statements that may be deemed as forward-looking. Any such statements are not guarantees of future performance and actual results may differ from those projected. This podcast is not engaged in rendering legal, financial, tax, or other professional services. Welcome everyone to episode 27 of Top of Mind with Concilio Wealth. Today is June 28th, uh, just about 11.45 in the morning. How and I are back to discuss top four things in the news right now. What the heck is going on with mortgage rates? Both commercial and residential, we're going to unpack that. Zuck and Elon are in the news. Apparently they're doing a, a, a duel uh, in in Vegas, so we want to unpack that. It's just top of news. I guess we thought we'd give you our thoughts. There's some recent headlines that are suggesting that now, after a huge market rally this year, now is the good time to invest. Not at the beginning of the year. Now, that's interesting. <laughs> Thanks, media. And We're finally, not just market. Advice, though. Yep, we are not, not financial advice. advice at all. But now's the time. And finally, does market timing really matter? All right. Let's start with the first item here. What is going on with mortgage rates? Has anybody seen mortgage rates lately? They are insane. They're not coming down. They're holding. The real estate market's ticking up. There's bidding wars again. Seems like prices are actually going up. I get those emails from Zillow like everybody else that says everybody's home and all the zip codes around we're all looking at are going up by a couple percent year over year. Who knows if that's right or not? but it's swung from a slight negative to a slight positive. Let's unpack this. How, where should we start here? Yeah, let's start with the headline that people are used to. That's the 30-year fixed mortgage rate. It's when you see uh, an article post, mortgage rates touch 7%, touch mm-hmm. 6.5%, right? That's the 30-year fix. But anyone who's been in the mortgage market has probably seen other varieties of it, right? Like the 15-year, 30-year. Uh, adjustable rates, FHA loans, VA loans, right? And you have the jumbos as well, right? We have anything above 750000 That has a different rate structure component to it. And that's mm-hmm. residential. And then we're like, now we're looking at commercial where, um, I don't know if any, everyone knows this, but commercial rates are 5, 7, and 10-year. There's actually no 30-year fix for a commercial rates right and they roll they have to roll over more frequently the odd thing about like what chris was saying about what the hell's going on with interest rates is they're all exactly the same they're all six and a half to seven percent flat across the board no matter what product you're getting no matter how long you're going no matter the loan amount like it's it's pretty wild to see all these varieties of mortgages have the same exact cost associated with them, commercial and, and residential. Like it's it's the two charts we have on our document are pretty wild. And again, we're not going to share our screen. I don't think it's compliant, but um, pulling from aggregate of survey, like these are surveyed banks. So it's not just one bank that says we're going to go crazy and go everyone's paying the same exact rate no matter the type of loan, right? So since the survey is saying rates are flat across the board, 
that is like raising all kinds of flags for us, right? I think you were the first to notice when we got our weekly rate email. Yeah, so for context here, in a normal rate environment, you would expect if you buy a 30-year mortgage, which is a 30-year locked rate, versus, say, a 7-1 arm, which is a still a 30-year amortization schedule, a 30-year payment schedule, but your rate is only locked for the first seven years and then becomes variable, you would assume that that seven-year rate would be lower than your locked 30-year rate because you're assuming some risk as the buyer of that mortgage. Uh, the rates could go up in the future. What we're seeing right now is that it doesn't really matter the product, 30-year, 15-year, seven-year adjustable rate, five-year, they're all coming in right at about the same rates. And so that's very, very strange. And how, what do you think that means? So in terms of pricing, what are banks saying about what they think are, is going to happen with rates, given that all these mortgages are selling at about the same number? I think it says, one, that the banks have zero, zero appetite for certain types of loans. So if you would expect a lower rate, let's say adjustable rates have traditionally gotten lower teaser rates, at least initially, and then they mm -hmm. reset after this. In your example, was a seven. Mm -hmm. right? let's, let's say it resets after seven years. That teaser rate is suddenly the same as a fixed rate. So why would you go through an adjustable rate mortgage now? Mm -hmm. right? You're paying the exact same as a fixed rate. So in seven years after the reset you have no benefit to that because we don't know what rates are going to be in seven years. They might be higher. You might have to refinance anyway. So well, I think that's I what think, makes, it, makes it hard, right, to make a decision or make it easy. I think what the, the banks, banks are saying, the banks are saying with almost 100% certainty, rates will be lower in the future. Yeah. In fact, so they're, they're saying there is a near 100% probability that any of these loans will be refinanced before that rate lock is up. So that's why they're pricing even a five-year arm. So five-year rate lock, 25 years left on the loan after that uh, becomes a variable rate. They're saying that loan won't even be in existence for five years because it's gonna get refied to lock in then a lower rate. And so the banks are saying there's 100% certainty that at least within five years, rates will go down. We'll see if that's right or not, but that's what yeah. the banks are saying with the pricing of these loans. Well, let me quiz you real quick. Um... Round up uh, to the nearest percentage. So, what thirty-year fixed rate? Uh, six and a half. Seven. So, what's a five-year adjustable rate? Well, I mean, seven. going along with what we're saying, seven. Seven. <laughs> <laughs> FHA. Seven. Seven. Oh my gosh! Like this is a jumbo, thirty-year jumbo, uh, seven. It's like the weather in LA. It's like it's always eighty, no matter what. <laughs> so, so what, if you have a friend in uh, Southern California and you ask him how the weather is, it's low eighties. It's always low eighties, and this is so odd to see, up and down, because that that quiz was kind of a trick question. The answers are seven across the board. I actually yeah. thought something was going to be different with one of those, and you were going to you were going to bust me. But <laughs> no. Like jumbos have to be different, or whatever. And, and and by the way, for context, each bank's pricing a little different. Everybody's going to have, you know, maybe an eighth of a point difference, yeah. you know, in their loans. It's not going to be perfectly straight across, but but I think every our listeners get the point. Yeah. So I I think to dig a little deeper on on what the banks 
hesitation to give out these loans given um, their their fortune telling overview of rates going forward. I guess uh, I don't know how else to say it. Their, their outlook on rates, um, to, the fact that they priced everything exactly the same. Um, one, they want to reduce selling jumbos or selling um, adjustable rate mortgages and have that sit on their their balance sheet, right? Uh, First Republic was one of their biggest faults was selling way too many jumbo loans to rich hmm. Silicon Valley borrowers. And then when your your loan book is overly concentrated, just like your investment portfolio is heavy in one area, that can hurt you. So what they're doing is smoothing out everything to where there's one no incentives for the the products that they probably don't need more of. So the adjustable rates they probably don't need more of in their portfolio because Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac aren't picking those things up or those alternative type of uh, loans where where those government agencies are picking up more of the traditional loans, right? So if you want to get cute with your loan book, you're taking the risk. You're not going to be able to dice up the mortgage and send it off to the trading platform, right? And I think that's what they're the banks are seeing on top of deposits leaving. So there's there's a dual function going on where where they have simply less money to lend out. Mm-hmm. And so for context, I, a, a, a jumbo yeah. loan is the bank assumes risk there. So if anything is a conforming loan, which is under the jumbo limits, um, the, the federal limit is, is 726000 approximately, but it does actually range per county. Uh, for example, in King County, it's uh, close to a million now. So, so you know, it, it does flux so that, you know, the, the, the Fannie and Freddie can take over these loans. Now, if that happens, uh, not take over, but back those loans, um, if that happens, that is less risk for the bank that's issuing the loan, and therefore they often turn around and, and issue a lower interest rate. So if you have a $2 million mortgage that's not able to be uh, shipped out to Fannie and Freddie, therefore the bank assumes more risk, and therefore the interest rate might be slightly higher uh, because of that. So, so there's some context on what a jumbo is and, and why they are often a little bit more expensive than a conforming loan. Yeah, and when we talk about <clears throat> mortgages or mortgage rates being somewhat linked to the 10-year treasury, I think we are seeing a bloated spread between the 10-year. So mm-hmm. the 10-year to start the year actually went down from 4% to about 3.7%, whereas it is now. Yeah. That su- should suggest mortgage rates should be about 4.5 to 5%, mm-hmm. not the 7% variety or whatever it is at this very moment. Um, <clears throat> so we're seeing the the spread, meaning banks are purposely putting in extra points or interest rates to make up for relatively elevated risk or supply demand. So if you mm. don't have money to loan out because the deposits are leaking out the back door, you're, you're having a, essentially put a premium on anyone who wants to borrow money from you. And if your deposit base is shrinking, you have less money to loan out. So we also have an example here from a regional bank. Um, and so this is just a, a really showing that how regional banks are under pressure with the unknown on potential future regulation. So right now, their rates also across the board are 
the same for any loan that they they issue. So everything we've quoted here up to this point is it's really just public data on what these loans are trading for. Um, you know, we've got some actual data on a weekly email from a small regional bank. Um, same rate for a 30 year fixed as it is a five year arm uh, across the board. Now, what they're saying is that they're concerned that new regulations could come in to the smaller regional banks, which would force them to increase their tier one capital requirements. Tier one capital is their safe money. It's the, it's the deposits that the banks hold to back the loans, to back your deposits in there. And so they're concerned that if regulation uh, gets more strict and they have to hold more cash, they might not be able to make those deposit requirements uh, because if they loan out too much money, then they then they don't have the cash. So they're in a in effect pulling back lending by raising rates, and basically saying if somebody wants to pay an above market rate, say I don't know seven and a half or something like that, you know above a normal stated rate, sure go ahead, let's do it. Other than that, we're going to inadvertently kind of slow our lending right now until this uncertainty um, sort of sort of abates. So uh, it's just interesting. Regional banks are still hurting from this big fallout. Yeah, we've been consistent with it too. We said this this withdrawal rate that's been going on since really February, right? That that's finally we're seeing some of the the direct impacts and some of the weirdness because as a result of it. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if this is done because we got two more rate hikes in in the pipeline, mm-hmm. and that's like two weeks from now. This is the end of June, and Powell spoke today, and he said two more. That's Yep. That's what we're putting on the table. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's probably priced in at this point. Although I don't know that rates really moved much when he said that. Hmm. Interesting. Rates have been pricing or markets have been pricing in rate cuts, but then he said, we're going to do two more yet. Rates haven't really moved upward since he said that. Have they? Correct. And I think we've been hmm. consistent on this front as well as the Fed only moves the overnight rate. doesn't move yeah. the... Tenure, right? And we've been referring Fair. to the tenure, which is market market driven. And we've I don't not to toot our own horn or pat ourselves in the back. We've been pretty consistent with that all year, right? Where the tenure's market driven. I don't I didn't expect it to move much this year and it hasn't. It's actually moved mm-hmm. down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. All right. Let's move on to our next topic here. Zuck versus Elon. Who you got? Where's your money? Uh Zuckerberg, I Anyone who trains in jiu-jitsu, even I know he's a white belt, so he's probably been doing it for a year. Um, I, I think, <laughs> I think the training, even though the size disadvantage um, in Elon's favor is pretty big, if Elon's never formally trained in martial arts or anything like that, especially jiu-jitsu, where like the, Zuckerberg's probably just going to take him down and choke him. <laughs> and, and I can't believe we're saying this about two multi-billion dollar Fortune 500 CEOs at the peak we'll of the See if this power. actually happens. I mean, is the board going to let them actually go out there and potentially hurt each other? Um, there, yeah, there's uh, got to be a like a danger clause. Well, if, yeah. Zuck, if Zuckerberg um, consistently practices, which even in practice, jiu-jitsu is relatively uh, dangerous, you you know, uh, my wife and daughter practice it and they, they come back with injuries and mm-hmm. that's in the, in the safe setting. So, mm-hmm. so I don't know if these boards have clauses where you can't do, you know, uh, perform risky activities or our insurance won't cover you or if at the event of an early death or whatever. 
especially against another uh, Fortune 500 CEO. Hmm, who knows? <laughs> uh, well, if it actually goes through, my money's on Zuck too. Um, I think Zuck is a closet savage. Um, he he did the Murph challenge and posted his time um, over the the holiday weekend a, a couple of weeks ago, and you know had had an incredible time. Um, he I, I I heard this. I didn't read this, but I I, I think that he had anonymously entered a jujitsu contest and won he won the whole thing and so i mean he he's he's and just hearing him talk and and hearing him just on different podcasts and whatnot i think he is uh ridiculously meticulous um in in his day and in his training and that sort of thing not that elon is not by the way i'm just if i were to place money on this here uh my money would be on zuck so yeah, and for me, being so close to jiu-jitsu practitioners, I guess, they kind of remind me of crypto bros, where they, they definitely drink the Kool-Aid. And, or um, the next closest thing is probably CrossFitter. The, that's just that mentality is mm-hmm. suddenly ingrained in them no matter how long they've been doing it or how little they've been doing it. And I think uh, from what I've seen from Zuckerberg actually entering a competition shows me that he is jujitsu's version of a crypto bro and i think he's very very much dedicated to the craft and i would be pretty scared and worried if i were elon if (laughs) if this really goes through okay so you posted some headlines here that are saying that now's the time to invest finally after the market is up quite a bit this year the market's actually had a really good year by the way Um, we can unpack that in a future episode maybe once we cross the halfway mark we can do sort of a um uh, a, a review, you know, half year in review. We will also be releasing our next quarterly commentary shortly after the quarter closes. So, you know, everybody can, can stay tuned for that and we'll, we will debrief what happened. But uh, you posted an interesting article here. I believe it's from CNBC or CNN. 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 Okay. Let's unpack this. What's, what's this headline say? Yeah. It's, it, the date of the headline is important, right? June 27th was when it originally published. So we're June 28th. The market has already run, I believe, 17%. And verbatim, the headline says, why it might be time to get optimistic about the stock market. Mm-hmm. And there's, again, uh, Chris and I have always been proponents of buying anytime, all the time, especially when the markets and the mood goes down, right? We went over the averages of when optimism or peak pessimism is the best time to invest because the average returns over the next 12 months have been you know four times what what it is when things are great just can't time that kind of thing mm-hmm. but what this article is really implying is we probably should have been in cash this whole time because we felt bad about the <laughs> the stock market heading into the year now that it's almost like that exact halfway point right we're hitting july 17% later should you be throwing your money in 17% on U.S. stocks, U.S. large cap stocks, diversified portfolios anywhere from, you know, 7 to 10, depending on your mix of, yep. of U.S. versus international and also bonds, because um, all of that changes things. But U.S. stocks have, have completely blown out of the water um, with also the shocker of international stocks have done incredibly well, too. <laughs> Um, okay, no one would have predicted that, but those two areas of uh, diversified portfolio are, are firing on all cylinders. Um, other areas are, are currently lagging so far this year. Uh, of course, a lot of year to, to go, and we'll see. 
this is saying here, so, you know, what's happening? Why are we all of a sudden now bullish? Well, U.S. stocks have uh, uh, managed to, to pull up from the recent bear territory, and they are now in bull market. So we're in bull market, finally time to invest. Uh, interesting. Interesting, interesting. You know, we talked about this in other episodes about how when consumer confidence is very low, that tends to uh, propel a very strong return in the future. Like the forward-looking 12 months tends to be very strong. That seems to be true. Uh, the market seems to have bottomed on October 15th of 2022. It's kind of done nothing but go up since then. So that would have been the right time to release this article. CNN, thank you. But instead, <laughs> you are waiting eight months later to now call call the tops here. Or yeah, go back to what? To in. We're on episode 29, Chris? Uh, today 27. is episode 27. Go back to episode one. We've, we started this when the markets were crap, and we said bye. And the mood was crap, right? I think we started this in early 2022. Mm-hmm. And we said, invest because the best returns come out of when there's blood in the streets, right? Warren Buffett's famous for saying that. And plenty of doubters for sure. And I think in the back of my mind during that whole time is when the markets finally turn around, watch the bulls suddenly come up out of nowhere and start to spring up, right? I don't, I don't watch uh, Jim Cramer or anything, but I'm pretty sure he's saying, oh, I've been... I'm happy about this market. It's going to keep going up. Okay, let's see how S Jim is doing. <laughs> so for those that don't know, there was a ETF. You can ETF anything these days. Um, there's an ETF that was recently created called the ticker symbols S Jim S J M. This is not a recommendation to buy or sell this ETF. Um, this is the inverse Kramer tracker ETF. So anything that Kramer says to buy, it will short. Anything that Kramer says to sell, it will buy. Um, they also have a long gym. I, I don't know what the ticker is on that. Oh, L gym. So, there you Makes go. Makes sense. Makes sense. Okay, this is a horribly unsuccessful ETF, by the way. There's only $4.5 million in this ETF. Um, in, in ETF terms, that's, that's nothing. Year to date... It's down. It's down about ten percent year to date. That's because it shorts shorts holding. So, if the market is a tsunami wave, like which I would describe blue chip tech this mm -hmm. year, mm -hmm. that anything that you're inverse of that is gonna sting. Long Jim is also up about ten percent. That's good. So it's tracking pretty well. Comes in a cool one point two percent expense ratio on either side of these. So each one is that high. So expensive and uh, interesting. That uh, maybe this is an interesting science experiment. S Jim short Jim. So the inverse Kramer index has four and a half million dollars in it. L Jim has how much money do you think Long Jim has in it? Two million. Five hundred thousand. Oh, okay. Love the doom and gloom. Maybe that's just an experiment of, of the media that we just covered, right? The, yeah. The, that, yeah. On that same token, I the the hot investment of the year was S-A-R-K, S -A -R -K, mm -hmm. which was short the A-R-K-K, famously run by Kathy Wood, who had quite a bit of uh, detractors 
against her investment style. I believe she's up 45% on the year. Mm-hmm. Um, so SR is is down 13% and up, uh, down 13% on the year. When it was the, the hot thing when it was introduced. So B, I think it's a lesson of being super aware of trading volumes because mm-hmm. if if you're buying something on a promotional whim to grab headlines because i know both both those pretty trashy etfs garnered a lot of uh legit headlines from bloomberg from cnn and that four million that you're describing probably was a result of the media directing some poor sap to buy sure a short arc or a short gym yeah and not realizing oh it's such a short bet kathy would anything she touches goes to zero well how are you doing now the spread between just the s&p let alone kathy is what 29 percent difference i mean short arc has 280 million in it yeah that's a lot of people throwing a lot of doubt in those companies that have collectively been up 48 percent I guess maybe it's a similar percentage, you know. So the the long arc has uh, about eight billion. So maybe it's a similar possession, um, percentage. Anyway, we're not here to discuss ETFs or, or, or <laughs> go, <laughs> go into all this, but uh, yeah. yeah, tangenting into into uh, into that piece. So let's we'll we'll bring it back. We'll bring it back. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I think the lesson here is. Don't, don't listen, know, listen to us, to us for advice. Don't listen to headlines. Yeah, don't yeah, don't pay attention to headlines. You always get invested. <laughs> listen to us instead. Yeah, yeah, yeah but we're so not hashing simple. out advice. We gotta be clear about that. We are not hashing out advice. We are hashing <laughs> out staying diversified. Be diversified, stay diversified, keep investing, invest stick to consistently. Your, yeah, stick to your investment plan. No one else's. Do not panic sell. Have the right portfolio for your risk tolerance and your time horizon. And everybody is a little different in that. So uh, work with a, a qualified professional that knows you well. Okay, good disclaimer. So um, last point, and this is related. Does market timing really matter? Well, I think you know the answer to that, How? but we have some interesting data here that we'd love to share with clients. So this is from 2020 to 2023. So 23 years of of data. If you took $12,000 a year and you dropped it in once a year, if you perfectly timed the S&P, meaning you bought at the calendar year bottom for 23 years, versus if you had the worst timing in the year and you bought at the calendar year top with all of that money, your difference is only about 300 grand over 20 years yeah over 20 years that might sound like a lot but let's uh let's unpack this so twelve thousand dollars for 23 years twelve thousand times 23 is two hundred seventy six thousand dollars okay you put two hundred seventy six thousand dollars in over 23 23 years you perfectly timed the bottom that is now worth 1.2 million not bad doubled doubled a little bit more so doubled doubled a little bit more uh, if you timed it perfectly horribly uh, and you bought the peak every single year, you are at $915,000. So that difference, again, eh, call it 300 grand. Really not that much. 
not that much. You still did well. well. Contrasting that lastly with three-month treasury bills. So you decided at the, the first of every year, Jan 1, you instead dropped your $12,000 into three-month treasury bills, uh, and you reinvested that. Your 276000 would grow to a whopping 334000 Interestingly, it's about the difference. So my point here is that cash is king, but cash is not a strategy, and don't worry about timing. If you totally got it wrong, you will probably not get it wrong again or time it perfectly wrong. Therefore, just keep investing. How, what are your insights? Yeah, I, I would go back to your comment about not a big difference. The first, the one that had perfect timing, you could call a, technically a millionaire, right? The second one with the absolute worst timing, investing since uh, 2000 with 900,000, not a millionaire. So late, if you're really into the labels, I think that, that, that last phrase stings, but that's the only difference, um, I think. But again, we're talking a spread of 200,000, actually not a huge difference over 20 years at all. And we're talking about if you invested on um, the day before the 2008, 2009 crash, right? You invested on the dot-com bubble, like the peak of the bubble powers, and you invested on um, February of 2020. Like you had the worst luck and the worst timing, and you were mm -hmm. still only seeing a difference of $200,000. It shows you compounding a lot more powerful than than year-in, year-out returns. And let's right? not forget the point of this. You invested $276,000 over 23 years. Yes, that being basically saver. became a million bucks no matter how you sliced it. Yeah. That yeah. math is incredible. That's the point. So mm -hmm. it's not about $276,000, you check it next year and it's worth 250 or 220 or 300 or you know, up or down yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Over long stretches of time, look at that rate of return. You you doubled twice in both scenarios at least. And to be fair, rounding. investing on those wrong peaks um, you might have lost sleep over being $600,000 richer relative to having that money in cash. Oh, gosh, we could right. re revisit my 529 issue here yeah. with uh, investing <laughs> in what I thought was I've been key. wanting to bring that up behind the scenes, too. Uh, this is the first time, time yeah. it's been brought But yeah. you see, <laughs> sleep costs that cash investor $600,000. Mm -hmm. I would probably be in this, <laughs> close to be an insomniac for that amount of money. But you think Great point. that that gap is I well I sleep well at night. How and Chris don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, sometimes we don't, but that's a six hundred thousand dollar gap over a twenty year period. One, twenty years don't magically appear on the back end of your life. We don't live to one hundred and twenty. We don't live to one hundred and forty. You've lost the, the those compounding years. They're gone. Right? It would be difficult to outsave that rate of return. Turning Correct. 276 into a million plus or minus, it would be difficult to outsave that same experience. Well, I'm going to play devil's advocate. Well, I'm, I'm the cash investor. Well, Chris, I, let's bring it back to the 70s and 80s when cash was gaining, what, 12% in the 70s and 18% yeah. in the 80s. Yeah. What do you got to say about that then? 
Well, I wish we could actually pull this chart back there um, yeah. and show that because what you what you actually experienced was one of the best bull market runs in history. So the fallacy was I'm doing the right thing. I'm buying the thing that's earning a better rate of return that I think the market's going to give me. You're chasing returns. Yeah. And I'm taking no risk. Well, in bonds, right? I'm yeah. buying the thing. I'm going to earn 10, 12, sure, 15, 18 percent and take no risk. That seems good enough for me. But then what actually happened was a significantly even better return in in markets. That doesn't always play out, by the way. That's not a saying when rates are high, markets always do do better. That doesn't always work. Uh, our point, though, is what generally works is investing over long periods of time creates a sound rate of return. Yeah. Above bonds. <laughs> <laughs> okay, is. so here's the point of this. this. This chart actually comes to us from Goldman Sachs, so I want to credit them and yep. also give us uh, a little bit more detail. The point of this is investors have poured, I'm just reading here, so I'm quoting, investors have poured $800 billion into money markets this year, given attractive yields, right? You can earn 4 to 5%, even a little bit more than 5% on a money market now. Yep. That is a lot more than 18 months ago when it was, you know, quarter to a third of a percent. However, overweight cash allocations may come with a high opportunity cost. The difference in ending portfolio values between perfectly timed annual S&P 500 contributions and worst timed annual uh, contributions is $300,000. But the difference between the worst time contributions and only holding cash, $600,000. So that's in a some, nice way to say get invested, stay invested. Yeah, get invested, stay invested, which you've heard it here. You'll hear it here again. Um, we'll continue to, to preach that. Well, and to be clear, let's kind of unpack that 5%. That's what I meant by the, the bit of a return chasing. One, you're mm. not looking forward. What are rates doing mm -hmm. in, at the end of the year, according to our JB Morgan chart, right? The, the, what, the, what is the market price in yeah, six months to a year? at some point, yeah. Yeah. So enjoy it while it lasts. It's not going to last very long, right? We're not investing in six-month in increments here. We're investing for 20 years like the Goldman Mm -hmm. Charts suggest because that's where compounding time, right? Compounding is so much more valuable than and trying to get cute with it. Again, a lot of people might be right if we do get a market correction the back half of the year and they're sitting happy with five percent in cash. But think about it year 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 from now, two years from now, three years from now. That those rates sitting in money markets won't be those rates forever. Money markets will move up and down with what te technically what the Fed says or does. If they start lowering to re-stimulating a debt economy, which, one, if you're parking money there thinking the economy is going to get walled by a recession, you're not going to be able to sustain 5%. So try to think ahead two, mm. three, four years down the line if you wanted to micromanage your investments, which again, we sh you shouldn't, right? Trade, stock investments should last five plus years down the line. Mm -hmm. And cash now, super appealing. Don't get me wrong. And especially at market peaks, it might be, get you a few nights sleep extra, but mm -hmm. you gotta think about it longer term than this. And too many people, inner billion to the, to that tune, are thinking too way too short term. 
Yeah, those short-term market movements is really what creates a lot of your return. Um, you just got me thinking about this this article that we just talked about that said, "Hey, now's the time to get more bullish." Yes. If if somebody was in cash because it was five percent, you earned half of that so far, right? Let's just say it's been six months, so you've earned two and a half, but you missed somewhere between you know six to fifteen of additional return if you weren't in in the markets there and so then if you hopped in then what if things come down which could happen what if things continue which also could happen but it's it would be very hard to you know to catch up my point in that sort of framing is because when we as investors make a decision to either sell and go to cash or change the allocation dramatically like i'm 90 percent stocks 10% 10% bonds, and I'm deciding I'm going to go to 50% stocks, 50% bonds. When we make that decision, we actually opened up another decision as well, which is at what point do we get back? And I would argue that that second decision is the harder of the two. It's easy to sell, especially based on headlines. Headlines will not help you get back in. Yeah, because and headlines, another- like we just highlighted, are going to say, now's the time to get back in. Whereas when the headlines are the worst, you know, six months ago, that yeah. apparently was the time given, given what we now know in historical charts. And I think another headline that I am going to quote is on conciliary.com insights written by yours truly. You got to look at the, the, the fact that you're staying invested is an active decision to stay invested, even though you're doing nothing to your investment, right? You mm-hmm. buy and you do nothing, right? You're so much better off by doing that. But people don't recognize, especially this year or late last year when they sold at the bottom. Let's hope they didn't, right? Um, Fortunately, none of our clients did, so that's good. Yeah, there's a high appeal to that where the market is getting walloped. It's only going to get worse from here, right? How many times have you heard that? And there's an active decision to say, this sucks, but I'm going to stay in it. Because mm-hmm. my, my future self 10 years down the line is is going to thank me 20 years down the line is going to thank me for making the right decision because that, that go to cash decision over extended periods of time, if that accumulates enough, you're leaving hundreds of thousands of dollars on the table. As, as we just showed. Yeah. Yeah. So think of doing nothing as an active decision. Cause it is an active decision. I know it's hard. I know it. I'm talking from personal experience for both me and Chris, right? It goes to that five two nine, the active decision to not, to not invest or to invest or stay invested, guys. I'm pretty sure we're gonna have conversation about his son's account balance when things get rough because we got what 17 years left of investment. We're gonna run through another tough period, maybe two. That's why when we work with clients, we just execute. It's just here's what makes sense. We do yeah. it. Just put but the money when we when we look at our own accounts and we say, "All right, is now the time to invest a thousand bucks?" Right, we get in our own head about it, and so it's 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 that separation of uh, of the, the emotion. emotion, yeah, and the money, and you know, we are very unemotional with with how we invest because it's very logic driven. It's very it's very process driven. It's it's an institutional wealth management process that we that we go through. Um, which is objective. So that's the whole, that's the whole point of delegating that is, is reading those, those decisions. 
So for those that, that didn't catch that, uh, if you hop onto conciliowealth.com under the insights tab, about six down, you'll see Howe's article, which is called doing nothing can be better than doing something. And uh, he unpacks a lot of this here. That article posted June 15th. If you're on our email list, you would have gotten that in your inbox. We, we send weekly emails with updates, things from our firm, you know, new podcast releases, new YouTube channel releases, things like this, uh, as well as quarterly and, and market commentary. So uh, if you are not subscribed, you can subscribe right on our website, uh, that same in insights tab, and there's a subscribe button. Also, uh, as we wrap here, I want to mention that we just launched our second YouTube playlist. So it's still under the same YouTube channel if you're subscribed there. Awesome. And this playlist is called Concilio University. The point of it is to release two to eight minute videos on some sort of a high, high, a hot button topic. Our first video that we released, which I'm excited to report, is our most watched and most engaged video that we've ever done, is how to do a backdoor Roth IRA. So we'll continue to release videos like that uh, to unpack financial concepts, unpack how to's, and we promise to keep them uh, quick and uh, you know quick little digestible snippets. If you have anything you'd like to see a video on, shoot us a note, team at conciliowealth.com, and we will put it into the mix and we will build that video and release it uh, in, a coming, in a coming week. All right, thanks everyone so much for joining us here on episode 27. We hope this was helpful and we'll see you again soon.